Have you ever seen a movie with a slow motion scene? I'm sure you have if you've seen an action movie or something like that. But have you ever thought about why they do that? Uh, Normally, it's because the director wants you to take in the fight or the action scene in all its glory. And normally, it works out pretty well. Like if you watch the original Lion King, you may remember that Simba and Scar's battle at the end is just one complete slow motion scene. And they do that to demonstrate the epicness of the battle. But... If you were to slow down the wrong thing, it would have the opposite effect, right? It's something you learn if you watch any film by Zack Snyder. Uh, Zack Snyder loves slow-mo. If you watch the Snyder Cut of Justice League, he slows down the strangest things, like people chewing or them putting a coffee cup down on a table. And I know there was a reason for doing that, but to the audience, it's like, why'd you do that, Zack? Like, we don't care about that. You slowed down the wrong thing. Well, the story we're looking at tonight kind of feels like it was recorded by Zack Snyder in that it's one slow motion battle, the Battle of Jericho. But it seems like the guy slowed down the wrong things. And so we're going to be looking at Joshua and the Battle of Jericho found in Joshua chapter 6. Uh, And so we're going to do three things. We're going to look at this slow motion scene and all of its action and what that shows us about God. Then we're going to look at why this story is in slow motion. And finally, why that matters to any of us. So join me in Joshua chapter 6. Now, before we get into the story, we really need to set the scene. So Joshua and the Israelites are ready to take the land that God has promised them. And they, they have to start with Jericho. Jericho was the strategic center. If they could take Jericho, they effectively cut the land in half and would make it way easier for them to take the land of Canaan. But taking Jericho was not going to be an easy feat. It it had not one, but two monstrous walls around it. So if they figured out some way to get over or through the one wall, archers would make them as holy as Swiss cheese before they got over the second. And so Joshua is, is out surveying Jericho. He's pondering, how can we take this city? And God comes to him with a plan in verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a loud blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So God slow-mos the plan, right? Spells it out in pretty good detail. And if you've heard this story before, you don't bat an eye. Like, yeah, this makes perfect sense. But just imagine that you're Joshua, right? This is a ridiculous battle plan. God's grand military strategy is to have people march around a city once per day for seven days, and then the walls will fall down. It's ridiculous. But that's the plan that that Joshua and the Israelites do. Joshua gets the people together and in slow motion lays out the battle plan and informs them in verse 10 that, that they're not allowed to do anything. You can't shout, can't make any noise. Just walk around it once. That's it. So the text goes into all this detail. 
until it gets to the first march around, the second march around. You're like, finally, some action. We're gonna, we're gonna do something. Nope, skips three, four, five, days three, four, five, and six. Fast forwards to verse, or day seven, where our text slows down again to get even more instruction for the Israelites about what they're to do with the spoils. And then in verse 20, the battle actually starts. Joshua 6, verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the walls fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. The end. That's the battle, right? It's two verses. It's two very short verses. And here's the point of the story. God is more than capable of carrying out his plan, no matter how ridiculous it might seem to us. But hopefully there is something that is bothering you about this story. And that's this. The writer slowed down all the wrong stuff, right? We don't care about the instructions. Where's the battle? Where's the epic fight? It seems like the guy slowed down the wrong things. But that's because he's emphasizing something different than action. The guy's trying to emphasize obedience. And, and, and here's why he's doing that. Israel has a problem. It's actually a twofold problem. See, I, I propose to you that there are two typical ways that we respond when we hear God's plan. Uh, and both of them can be teased out in connection to this story. So, so one natural response is simply to run away from God's plan. And we see the Israelites doing this 40 years earlier. So uh, after the Israelites went through the Red Sea, go to Mount Sinai, they come to the edge of the promised land. And Moses sends 12 spies out into the promised land to scout it out, figure out where the, the difficult cities are going to be, stuff like that. Ten of those spies come back and they say, hey, the land is amazing, but it's filled with giants and the land will destroy us. So we can't take the land. And so the people are, are, are distraught. They weep and wail. They complain against God because of his plan. And they actually wish they would have stayed and died in Egypt as slaves. And you might be wondering, okay, why are they being like that? Like, this is the same group from last week. This is the same group that saw the ten plagues, that saw the Red Sea part before them. They saw God flex his might against the greatest nation in the world. Why are they freaking out about a few fortified cities and tall people? And it's because of their sin nature. Remember that, that, that sin is the conviction that we are wiser, we know better, and care about ourselves and our well-being more than God. In other words, our natural reaction is to mistrust God and his plan. And so whenever they heard fortified cities and giants, they said, mm, there it is. That's proof that we can't trust God and his plan. He's just, he's just going to waste us like a, a pond in a chess game. And, and so they grumble against God and they threaten a mutiny against Moses. And God was not going to put up with that. And so he declares that all of them would die in the wilderness. They would never see the promised land. Instead, their children would take the land that they failed to take, which is where we get to in the book of Joshua. The, these people's children are led by the two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb. 
into the promised land to fight the giants and take the fortified city. So one knee-jerk reaction to God's plan is simply to run from it. But there's another possibility that seems better, but it's just as problematic. I want you to imagine that you are a soldier in the Israelite army. You have trained for years in the wilderness to take the promised land. You are, you are jazzed up for the thrill of the fight and the, just the, the experience of victory. And then Joshua, the commander, comes in and tells you the plan. We're going to walk around the city once, and then you're going to sit in your tent all day and wait till the next day so we can do it again and again and again. What are you feeling right now? You're feeling frustrated. You're probably going to feel embarrassed because once the Jericho realized that you guys aren't attacking, they probably started laughing at you. They probably started making fun of you. And what would happen is through your, just coursing through your brain, you say, I can think of a better plan than this. Surely I can think of one better than this. And that's the other natural response to God's plan. We modify it, right? We we change it a little bit. We, we think of ways that we could do it better. Now, we have to remember, we know the story of Joshua. So once again, it kind of makes sense to us. But it would also make perfect sense to us if Joshua said something like this to God. That is a great idea. I love the creativity you're bringing to this, God. You know what I really need is a hailstorm. Or maybe like confuse them a little bit so they start attacking each other. We can take the city. You just got to like, we got to work with us here a little bit. And, and, and what I want you guys to see is this. Both of those natural responses actually have the same root problem. Both of them mistrust God's ability and his motives. And that's what this tr- story is trying to warn us against, our inclination to mistrust God and therefore disobey his instructions. The text puts the instruction, the obedience in slow motion, because that's what it's calling us to do, to obey a God sufficient to accomplish his plan. And as the Israelites would hear this story, it would call them to be obedient, despite how ridiculous it seems to obey God's plan, because it works. And here's why that matters for us. We suffer from the same natural responses to God's plan as the Israelites do. We hear that God has a plan to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us a hope in the future, and we think that sounds pretty great. After all, who, uh, who doesn't want to live in that proverbial promised land? But then we hear what that plan calls for. It calls for us to consider others better than ourselves, to build up one another with our words and our actions, to flee sexual immorality, to prioritize God above all else, to share the good news about Jesus, and on and on it goes. And when we hear that, we default to our typical reactions. We either run from the discomfort and the potential embarrassment of carrying out those orders, or we modify the strategy a little bit. We, we do the things that make sense to us, and then we make exceptions, look for loopholes, or we just go AWOL and do whatever we want. I think we do all of that because we don't actually trust God's plan. The obedience he calls us to, the instruction that he lays out for us, they just don't line up with what we think is best. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why in the world would we ever obey 
God's seemingly ridiculous instructions. Well, Joshua and the Israelites did it because they were convinced that God could be trusted. That the, despite the ridiculousness of his plan, it works. Or rather, he works. They believed that God was able to accomplish his plan, and that confidence led them to obey. And that's the key for us as well. If we're going to obey God's plan despite its difficulties and ridiculousness, we need to be assured that God's plan actually works. And this is where Jesus comes into the picture. Jesus is the proof that God's plan works. Do you remember at the beginning of this series when we were talking about Genesis 3 and the serpent? God laid out his master plan in Genesis chapter 3, how a son of Eve would come and crush the serpent's head at the expense of his own life. That is a ridiculous plan. But not only did it work, but God made it work out for our good. See, here's, here's the point. God's plan is going to seem ridiculous at times. There are going to be things that he instructs you to do that makes absolutely no sense to your friends, to your peers, and if we're honest, ourselves. But our response needs to be to obey his plans because his plans do always work out for our good no matter how ridiculous it seems.